Hello, and welcome back to Just Hands. Uh, I'm not flying solo today, but James is not with me. Instead, we have a fantastic guest, uh, someone who reached out to me a few weeks ago after uh, a longtime Just Hands listener who wanted to reach out after hearing my interview on Chasing Poker Greatness. And we got in touch and realized that we had quite a bit in common and that it was an absolute necessity for him to come on the podcast as soon as possible. And here he is. I present Justin Longo. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastically. I really appreciate you having me on, Jack. Well, before we dive into um, an interview, we're going to do what we always do here at Just Hands, which is discuss a hand of poker. And Justin, I hear you have a hand for us. I do. And I would just like to preface this hand by saying I live in Denver and it's unfortunate that I don't get to get out and play No Limit often enough. So uh, my wife's also a big poker player and we go to Vegas probably three, four times a year so we can get our yayas out, as I like to say. And uh, we were just there this past August for my birthday. And this hand comes from uh, a hand uh, I, I had, on, I think on my actual birthday night in downtown Las Vegas. Nice. And so before you continue, sure. Who's the better player? Well, she, I think she's better at tournaments and I would say I'm probably better at cash. Yeah. All right. So she's luckier. (laughs) She's had some pretty good, uh, pretty good runs and pretty good banks. So I got to give her credit where credits do. I will have to get Um, her on as well. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so where are you guys playing? Um, so we're playing at the Golden Nugget, and I wanted to bring this hand up because it's not not because it's uh, exciting with a ton of action, a lot of check raising, and should I lead, and all that, all those interesting questions. But I think this this hand that I'm, I've been thinking about ever since, um, more on a theoretical level, like how much do we, how do we apply what we've learned in theory, in game theory, and how do we apply that to real life in these real in real life situations, in situations where there's a lot of drunkenness and craziness. So here we go. So I'm uh, celebrating my birthday. I just had some pizza and some beer at Pizza Rock. Shout out Pizza Rock. Awesome, awesome pizza in Vegas. We're downtown. So we gather the crew together and we're like, let's go play at Golden Nugget. So Golden Nugget's one, two, uncapped. And, you know, I've, I've had a couple of drinks, but I'm not, com- I'm not obliterated. I'm, I'm definitely aware. I'm definitely trying to play my A game. I'm not trying to spew off, even on my birthday, even though I probably deserve the ability to spew off on my birthday, but I'm not going to, right? So I buy in for probably three, 400. I cover the villain in this hand and I sit down at a table and it is, um, I, I should mention that it is first Fridays in downtown Las Vegas, which is a pandemonium madhouse drinking everywhere. Uh, it's craziness. So the, nu- the nugget gets crazy, but it's even crazier on this particular Friday night because it's first Fridays. So I sit down at my table and um, I'm about two orbits in and I haven't really done much, but I noticed that most of the table is pretty wild and crazy, but the villain in this hand is a younger guy, probably late 20s, maybe early 30s, wearing a hoodie, typical grinder looking guy who is not drinking. My perception of this villain is that he's there to make money from us drunks. So that's my perception. And I- The plan from him? Yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. That, that's what it looks like. So um, a c- couple orbits in, I haven't really done anything. And uh, there's the villain, uh, very, very uh, straight-laced looking gentleman, late 20s, on the button. 
Uh, so three limps, two villain. So $2, $2, $2. And villain on the button raises to 18. And I'm in the small blind. And I have ace-queen offsuit. And so I look, my first thought is, okay, grinder-looking kid raising over three limps on the button. He's going to be super wide. I'm probably going to three-bet this ace-queen off. I look at his stack, and he only has $200. So now I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, uh, what size could I three-bet to without that doesn't commit me, and I can't come up with a size that I can use that does not commit me. Mm -hmm. So this is our first decision point. What do you think? Well, let me, so he has $200. Yeah, I think, and I'm judging by the looks of this kid, I, I'm assuming that he may have just lost this and hasn't been able to add on because I, I, he looks like the kind of kid that would want to cover the table because he's there right. to make money. So when you say it commits me, are you saying that it commits you because of the hand you have? Or that it, the perception is that you're committed just by virtue of having put in a certain amount of the total stack. Yeah, my thinking is if I I normally would three bet probably to somewhere around four x plus ish, like seventy five eighty dollars, and that is a third of his stack. So if he has any competency at all, which I'm giving him credit for for having, being a young grindy looking kid, then he'll know that that that's a third of his stack and that he just has to call out that he can, he can uh, four bet on me and I have to basically call it off because I'm getting, getting a good price. And my, my assumption was if he does indeed four bet me and I don't believe I'm, I'm ahead of any of his four betting range. I don't think he'd be four betting me with ACE five suited. I think he's four betting me with ACE King Jack's plus maybe tens plus. And I'm just, and I'm, I've got ace queen off. I just don't think I'm doing very good against his stuffing it in my face range. So I was kind of, I, I eventually just sighed and called because of his $200. We're only a hundred bigs deep. All right. So let me, uh, why not three bets smaller? You have this idea that you're up against an extremely wide range. Correct. You have a hand that performs very well against that range, blocks the top of the range, but maybe isn't so enthusiastic about playing an all-in pot preflop if it can be avoided. Our opponent has put in a relatively large open based on a hundred big blind stack. Not that it's a bad play, but it is. It's you know putting in nine bigs preflop you know, as like the first raiser is a lot. So I think it's to me if we're gonna three bet, I'm thinking that like a, a good size is going to be something like 50 or 55. Um, because I agree that our, we want to give the illusion that we can fold in order to give some of his potential bluffs or sort of merged value the incentive to raise from sort of a balanced standpoint. So what's your thinking or how, how are you thinking about a size like that? Something like fifty, fifty-five. How does that feel? Um, I think this is where my theory. So again, my my background on me is I don't really get to play all that much, but I'm like just so deep into the theory. Like I really, really, really enjoy talking about ideas. I really enjoy looking at theory. I'm constantly consuming um, theory. So I think that 
that is sometimes works against me in my creativity and that I'm thinking I'm in the small blind and I'm just, I'm four Xing plus limpers in the small blind, you know, and I'm not, uh, because I, that that's like what the theory says, you know, you, you go bigger out of position, you go smaller in position. If I'm on the button, I'm, I'm basically going to three X to, to, uh, to three bed. And then in the small blind, I'm just, I, so I think the theory got in my head and I never really considered a smaller size. Let me, I actually want to push back on the idea that the theory says to do that. I don't know that that's true. We don't, we really don't know what poker is supposed to look like. We don't, we have a good idea of what heads up limit hold'em looks like. Very, very good idea. Heads up, no limit. We have no idea. Um, and then multi-way, no limit. We really are in the dark. Now we understand that math is involved and that certain things are mathematical realities. We know that if your opponent has aces and you have seven two soft suit, you don't want to put in all the money. Like, so there's, it's not that we don't know anything, but I don't think there's any theory that says you're supposed to raise 4x from the small blind. I think that's really just a convention. It's sure. a helpful convention that in a lot of circumstances, this is something that will probably work well. Mm-hmm. And the way we get from good to great at poker, in my opinion, is being able to see a convention as a convention understand why that convention formed in the first place and then be able to use the sort of elements that inform that convention to inform our current decision in a more uh, direct way. So why is 4X often going to be a good size? I think it's basically just, it's a concession that we don't want to play out of position that often. We don't have to, we want to incentivize folds and laying this price with a relatively tight range is a strategy that will yield a lot of folds and give us clearer decisions post-flop. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that as a strategy. But I also think the assumption there is more like, or that strategy is created more around something like we're a hundred bigs deep, it folds to the button, he makes it two and a half bigs. And now it's like, yeah, we probably want to three bet to at least like nine or 10 or else we're not going to get very many folds at all because our opponent has reasonable odds and the SPR is high. Right. In this instance, that's not really true. Even if we make it 2x, if we assume we're always going to face a call, we're still getting to the flop with like a sub three SPR. And so our opponent is going to have a hard time playing against a strong range with a weak range at that SPR, even in position. So I wouldn't make it 32 because I do think we want to get folds now, but I think going 70 would actually be a little gratuitous here. Uh, And so don't, I wouldn't start with like the size is comes from theory. And then I choose a range to fit that size. Think of, think of poker as like a set of various incentives that face different parts of our range based on how our opponents are playing. And that sort of suggests different actions. Yeah, I, I certainly admit to um, just having it beat in my head that, you know, out of position, raise larger, in position, raise smaller, um, you know, really, really 
high SPRs with super deep stacks really favors the in-position person. So we try to raise bigger out of position to kind of like decrease that. And at the time, I just, in the moment, I could not think of a size that ha- if he does four bet me, that doesn't, doesn't commit me. So I hadn't, I hadn't come up with the 55 size. And I guess in retrospect, um, that probably would have worked out. Okay. I mean, I think that would have worked out all right, but, uh, yeah, I, I kind of just called because again, I, I couldn't think of a size that didn't commit me and I wanted to play the hand. And I was like, I would probably be more than willing to get it to three bet, get it in with ACE King and, you know, tens plus jacks plus mm-hmm. easy. So, I just kind of was on the very, on the cusp of that. I went, you know, ace queen off just doesn't really do the trick um, in that instance. Yeah. I mean, all that being said about other possible three bet sizes, I still think there's a case for flatting and it kind of comes down to the idea of what sort of hands do we get to fold versus what hands do we not get to fold. Now getting folds out of position is always a pretty good outcome or even a great outcome. And so I think that's that's the main reason for pre-betting is just we've identified a spot where we can win this pre-flop at a high frequency, mm-hmm. you know, even for like a not-so-huge raise size to something like 55 or 60, let's say. So I think it is true you're going to get a lot of folds for that size. Now, the advantage of calling versus pre-betting is that we're a lot more likely to get called by dominated aces and dominated queens when we, when we just flat ourselves versus three bet, especially from the limpers. And so I think there's a lot to be said for keeping in worse hands, especially if we think we're going to fold to a four bet. You know, so if we are not only not getting hands like Jacks plus and ace king to fold, but we're not realizing our equity against those, it's, it's a disincentive to three bet in the first place. And so I think that, I think there's a reasonable case for calling when stacks are a little deeper, I think the cost of keeping in hands that can win a lot versus a hand like ace-queen, when ace-queen makes a top pair type hand, that becomes a strong incentive to three bet. So, you know, you're all a thousand deep. Yeah. Um, I'm probably always three betting here because we can just three bet call and we can get these sort of pseudo connector type hands or hands that could potentially like make two pair against us and win a big pot, like getting a seven suited to fold when we have ace queen, when a seven maybe doesn't put in a lot of money uh, with just an ace, but does put in a lot of money with two pair. And we put in a lot of money with one pair when they have two pair. These are the kind of things that uh, deeper stacks start to incentivize us to prioritize denying equity. Whereas when stacks are short, you know, you call, you face three, let's say everyone else comes along you flop an ace or a queen on the flop, assuming it's not like a king-queen board, you're going with it. Like, check-raise all yeah. in, for sure. Or almost for sure. You know, uh, um, other than like on a very exceptional board, like something monotone or really just we're, monotone. We're like, uh, you know, say we're two, three hundred bigs deep, um, three-betting just ensures that I go heads up. You know, that, that's pretty much ensures that. Because I just don't, I can't imagine a scenario in which these these three limpers would call the the my my three bed if we're just if we're all both you know so deep so that that makes yeah, sense they're limping uncapped which is something that can happen in these games we can't totally discount sure uh, we can always say that no one ever calls but then we don't think about the times people just limp ace king you know yeah that's and true I've been, I've been i'm sure we've all been there a lot yeah. like, god damn it 
Slimper just has Ace King. No, that sucks. Didn't even see it coming. Yeah, did not see it coming. Um, yeah, so I, I don't think... Uh, my, my hunch is that the EV difference is not going to be so huge here between calling and free bidding unless button is really extremely wide. In which case, I think you probably do better for a three bet. Yeah. I I think his player type is he's not extremely wide, like he's not going to have king eight suited, but he's going to look at his like hijack opening range and just, just go 18 over these three limpers and try, you know, all the suited, nine, 10 yeah. suited, uh, Jack 10 suited, you know, queen 10, all, all of these, these types of hands, I think he would raise knowing that they're better than the, the trash that's being limped. That's yeah. And those are pretty good hands. And I think that's a good strategy for him to take. I'm thinking more like, you know, if he's looking down at eight, seven offsuit, uh, King dude suited and raising, then I think that we're probably better off just rebetting uh, and taking the pot down at a really high frequency preflop. Um, yeah, I definitely don't think he's that wide for for what it's worth. I think that's probably right. Yeah. So um, fortunately for us, uh, we call and the three limpers fold. So it is heads up. Okay. All right. So it's, uh, it's better yeah. than over rep, you know. Definitely underrepped. Definitely feeling like very borderline. So um, the there's about forty four bucks in the pot, and the flop is queen ten ten, rainbow. So what are your thoughts here? Is there any merit to? I mean, are we ever leading ever in this spot? I mean, are we check raising all in? What are your thoughts on this queen ten ten board? I don't think there's a lot of incentive to to lead here. I think we're in a very tricky situation versus a raise. We can be bluffed. We probably have to fold. I, I think it's just a really hard spot to like lead call. Uh, whereas I think there are a lot of potential bluffs here. Ace-Jack, King-Jack, Ace-King, uh, Jack-9, 8-9. Did you say it's a rainbow board? Yeah. Yep. Queen-10-10 rainbow. Yeah, we could be up against someone who just automatically c-bets with anything. You know, ace-deuce suited, it's just right. c-betting. And so it's really valuable to let that happen versus when we, whenever we leave, it, it's more likely than not that those hands just fold. And we also have a hand that dominates a lot of the bluffs, like ace-jack, ace-king are two hands that we really... It's If we leave, they probably don't fold, but... We really don't want to see those hands fold since those are hands we could potentially win a big pot against. Uh, it's not a guarantee. It's a tricky board to win a huge pot, but the SPR is such that I think we will effectively get stacks in against ace-king often when that ace comes. And so that's good to hear. I mean, just just like the good, studious little boy I am, I, I definitely checked to the raise around this one. And... Um, he uh, villain bets twenty five into forty four, so uh, slightly over half pot. What do you mm-hmm. think this does? This mean anything in particular? I mean, I think a lot of villains just see paired boards and just go, "Well, paired board, I'm just going to see that because it means there's it's less likely this guy is a damn thing." Yeah, I think uh, c betting very often is a very common uh, 
a common behavior. This is not a good board to see bet all the time. I think this uh, this board is pretty favorable for your range in the sense that I don't think I think you flop kind of in a way that it doesn't make sense to bet into on the flop very often. Um, but it's just a mistake I anticipate your opponents are going to make a lot. Like you're Broadway heavy and pair heavy mm-hmm. in my, is, is my assumption. I agree. And when you don't have, you might also have some like suited aces. So think about the incentives of a hand like ace jack or ace king here. Getting suited aces to fold is bad. It's objectively like we're denying the we're denying negative expected value. We get hands that really only win, or that really only put in money when they like turn an ace, and when they turn an ace, we turn a better ace. So getting those hands to fold is very bad for us. Pairs we can get to fold later. Um, like deuces is not heroing us on the turn and river, and I think against the rest of the range we're just in bad shape and we we were on the risk of getting check-raised anyway. And we could get check-raised by a hand like king-jack with ace-jack, which is a bad a bad outcome. So I think your opponent should have a relatively high check frequency that should include a lot of queens. But I just don't think that's how people play. Yeah, um, that's... Yeah, I, my my um my limited experience uh, live in, I've, in the last few years I've been playing, a couple of years I've been playing live, is that I think villains see paired boards and they just think it's just an auto C bet because it's a paired board. And so I was kind of in game thinking like, okay, he's definitely going to C bet this board because it's paired and he looks like the kind of kid that would do that. So, um, sure enough he did. So check, he bets 25 and I think about it for a minute. I mean, I don't, I could just go all in here. Um, I just, I, I decided on a call because I feel like uh, check shoving is just going to get, I'm going to get called by better and fold out worse. So I make him fold all his ace Kings, all his ace Jacks. Um, I just, so I, I checked and called. Yeah. I think, uh, I think call is a very good decision here. We, we acknowledge that our opponent might be a little bit wide pre-flop and that's going to mean more 10 X. And so we are up against tens relatively frequently. I do think I'm just foreshadowing. Like I think there is a world where we, we fold this hand. I don't, I'm not sure we're calling down like a triple here. That is how I would be approaching this. Cause I just think we're up against a lot of tens and we, I think maybe block, we block in some way more bluffs than we unblock or then we block value. We block more bluffs than we block value. And I, I just don't think that, Aces are like, I don't think worse queens bet for three streets often enough here for us to call down, given how many tens are on the board. Uh, so that that's probably my plan, is I'm expecting to see a lot of like smallish turn bets. A common behavior of like one, two players is regardless of like whether they have value or bluffs, to bet kind of small relative to the pot across three streets. And maybe not scale based on the size of the pot, but scale based on the size of the last bet, which is kind of like a, you're scaling at a slower factor than the pot's already growing. So seeing something like 25, 55, 105 here as a way to get all in is an extremely common betting pattern that I think we can take advantage of by just folding the river. 
where a, a lot of the value that we beat peels off and we end up against a 10x heavy range that shoves the river. There's risk there. You can get bluffed. But that's how I would be approaching on like mm-hmm. a really benign run out for both ranges. I mean, like, let's say a deuce three run out is I'm probably thinking we're pulling the river facing like that kind of betting pattern. Well, you're uh, you're clairvoyant. Um, but yeah, so I checked and called. Now the pot's 94. And you're, you're, uh, you assumed correctly the turn was a total brick. Rainbow board, and he bets half pot once again. So uh, 55, 55, yep, 55 into 94. And my thought is the same of, well, you know, um, in my, and this is where my theory in my, my, uh, my theory can kind of get the best of me is that I'm, I'm starting to think, well, what better hands do I have here? How many tens do I have ever in this spot? I'm not sure I have very many tens to be quite honest with you because I'm not a person that flats the small blind much at all. Cause I just, um, I've been, I've been shaken to the core about flatting in the small blind. Um, so I think I, I may have two combos of ACE 10 suited since there's two tens out there. I think I have two combos of ACE 10 suited, all my ACE Kings, all my ACEs, Kings, Queens, Jacks have are all, are all in pre-flop. So I think like, um, visualizing my range in my head and I'm seeing myself at the very top here with ACE Queen. Uh, and so I call again thinking I don't have any better. I have two combos of better hands in this spot to call down with. So here we go with the theory. Like if I'm, if I'm not calling this, then what am I calling? You know, I'm going to in this. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, so I think this, it works, it works against me. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of like, what is, what is the theory? Or I want to, again, as an exercise that I think is really, I'm using you as a proxy for teaching this really important lesson that I think a lot of people maybe are struggling with, which is, so I think it's important to separate like what is theory versus like what are heuristics we're using to guide our play. And I just want to, I, I am like a broken record at this point with this. A lot of, I think a lot of the record has come behind the software wide paywall, but I've been saying a lot over there and I'll say it more over here as time goes on. We don't know what theory is, um, mm-hmm. which is, it's just an important like little mental barrier to knock down for every poker player is that we don't know what poker looks like. We don't know how it's supposed to be played. Again, we understand that there's the math is a real thing and that given a very specific circumstance, like we can assume certain things about what should be done, which is essentially what a solver does. But in terms of like a from preflop through the river, we don't know what poker looks like. So right now you're using the heuristic minimum defense frequency in guiding your play. And so you're saying like, okay, my range is this. I'm facing this bet. This is probably my best hand to call with. And so I call. I yeah. think that it's not that that's a bad way to play. I think that will, it'll help you avoid folding way too much when maybe you think you should be folding a lot and you shouldn't uh it'll help you not call too much when maybe you you would think that i should be calling here all the time and you, sh- and you shouldn't 
But really, it's the kind of thing that I think we want to grow past to a certain degree. And so here's the type of growing past it that I want to emphasize. You know maybe what your range is. Your opponent doesn't know what your range is. And so I think it's it's better, you'll get better results thinking about how you might be perceived and what people are afraid of than just really pinpointing in on your own range. So you said that you might only have like King 10, Ace 10 suited here, let's say, as 10 yeah. Your opponent doesn't know that. Your opponent sees a guy one, two, you're sitting next to him, so maybe he knows you have you've had a few beers. Um, <laughs> but regardless, he's not going to think like this guy, oh, this guy only has four combos of 10x. I'm just going to hammer with like all my gloves. <laughs> That's not what's happening. I, if your opponent has a queen, what they're thinking is like, I really hope this guy doesn't have a 10. <laughs> and I think when, we, when, when pe- most people get to the river and they have a, a queen, especially a worse queen, let's say a king-queen, Queen Jack, even potentially worse. I think they're going to just check behind for the most part. And I think that understanding that you're perceived to have more tens than you actually are is really, really important here. Because if you if you force yourself to call with a lot of queens on this river, I think you might be playing against a very different opponent than you're actually playing against. And you might be putting in money always bad. It's not a guarantee, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. It'll raise like a, a high enough frequency such that you really should just never call with queens here. And I also think there's a case to make that... Well, ace-queen probably would be a call. It's probably your first queen that's a call. And then your second queen that's a call is probably like queen-eight suited if you have it. Or I would, I would rather have, let's say, like queen seven suited than king queen in this spot. Uh, just because of the types of hands we block and unblock. I think, I mean, the bluffs that are most likely and have the most combos are king jack, ace jack, ace king. But I think of all those, king jack is the most likely to fire three times. And so I, I think if we had king queen, king jack, we have a very, I, I think, a pretty easy fold. But then we block some combos of kings with king-queen, and we block some combos of aces with ace-queen. Yeah. So we, we block a little bit of value, but certainly not as much as the bluffs. Yeah, I'm we block a little bit of value. Although those hands may or may not go for thin value in the river. So I think it's, it's more important to unblock bluffs in this spot than to block like thin value, because I think the field doesn't go for thin value enough. But my main thought here is just that you're playing as if you only have four 10x combos and your opponent knows that. And I think you should be playing as if your opponent is worried that you have a lot of 10x combos. And what does that mean? Also, here's another thing. How many of your opponents do you think fold ace-queen on the river here after calling? Like, whatever. So what's probably getting like three to one on the river. Yeah, we are. Yeah. So after I make the, after I make this call on the turn, there's 200 in the pot and he only has a hundred left. So now I'm, you know, I'm getting three to one. If you're like him, a, how often do you anticipate like a queen is going to fold? Almost never. Yeah. So there, you, that's our edge. Yeah. 
Um, I will say that I I was playing this way because of the villain. And if this if this villain were an OMC or an old lady for sure or or anyone else, like this kid looked like he was capable. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is this is not an OMC. This is not a, a, a an old lady. This is somebody that is capable of firing Ace King three times, firing King Jack three times. He, I might look like I'm, you know, just a, an idiot uh, on his birthday. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, which I don't know would make him more or less likely to fire into me, to stuff it into me. Uh, I don't know. So yeah. I, I kind of was using his profile as like a gauge for evaluating my range like okay i only have like a few combos of tens here and other than a few combos of tens ace queen is just about the very very top and you know i'm not (laughs) i don't know i mean i i I, you you called it you know five minutes ago that you know the 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 river's a brick and now he's he's just gonna shove a hundred into a hundred into two and now i'm like well what do i do now (laughs) yeah so there's here's where i and I start to use something called partial profiling, which I haven't heard many other poker players talk about explicitly, but I think people sh- must be doing this, but it's something that I've talked about explicitly where it's sort of a, it's an abstraction away from just thinking in terms of partial combos. So instead of thinking like, all right, maybe there's a, maybe we're, we'll give a hundred percent of like Queens, Jack 10, Queen 10, King 10, Ace 10 suited, 100% of Ace 10 offsuit, 25% of King 10, Jack 10, Queen 10 offsuit, 50% of 10, 9, 10, 8 suited, quarter of Aces, Kings, quarter of Ace, Queen, and then half of like King Jack and a quarter of Ace, Jack, Ace, King, that kind of thing that would be like a way of just probabilistically assigning or assigning a probability to each combo that you expect to be relevant in your opponent's range. So that's, that's like the sort of standard way of approaching this kind of problem. Another way of approaching it would be to think of different types of profiles this person could be. Look at how those profiles each play individually, which is a little bit easier and then assigning each of those profiles their own probability. Mm-hmm. So like maybe this player just like 25% of the time, this is a player that just only has a 10 here. 25% of the time, this is a player who just is super aggro. And anytime they had ace, Jack, ace, King, King, Jack, or a 10 or aces or Kings or ace, queen always bets. And the yeah. 50% of the time, they're betting like a third of their potential bluff combos and all their value, but no thin value, something like that. And we can look at the com- composite of those three of those three ranges and then look at our outcome. I think so in going through like potential value versus potential bluffs, if we think the most likely bluff combo is King Jack, if there's 16 of those, um, we're kind of weighing the probability of that against what's looking to be about probably something like 30 combos of 10s. Maybe, maybe a little bit less. 
but somewhere between 20 and 30. And so we need that King Jack to be bluffed like all the time, <laughs> more than half. <laughs> um, and that's assuming that there's no, you're not up against like aces and Kings here. I, yeah. I don't think I would fold. And the reason I fold is because, and the reason I call the turn and fold the river, which is not a play I actually like doing very much. So the, in the GTO community, a lot has been made about barreling, like barreling frequencies, like how often bluffs should peel off and how that, why that gives us a justification for sometimes calling the turn, calling the river. That's all right. It's all correct. But I don't think actually our opponents are accurate enough with their bluffing frequencies on turn and river such that we are actually ever very often incentivized to bluff catch in that way at all. I think very often we're actually incentivized either just to bluff catch turn and river almost always, unless the board changes in some specific way or always fold the turn. And typically when I deviate from that, it's because I actually am anticipating something on the value side where Yes, like I think bluffs that bluff the turn continue on the river pretty frequently. So I should probably either always call both or always fold both. But in this instance, the reason I call one and fold the next is because there's a lot of queens that we either beat or chop with right. that I think we we'll should just check back. Yeah. I mean, also yeah. sometimes we just hit a queen, which is nice. But yeah. But mainly yeah. the value side, which is why I'm calling turn folding river. Well, I wanted to talk to you for exactly this reason in that I really am trying to get away from my, my intuition and the way that I'm wired is very black and white. And I really want to get away from that and, and understand that there's a, that poker is just all nuance and there is no always, and there is no never. And you always got to call this. If you always, if you call the turn, then you always have to call river. And I don't want to get into that mindset. And so I think in evaluating this hand, um, I've been thinking about this for a long time is that I, 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 I was trapped in the theory of, you know, MDF and where I'm at in my, in my range that I'm aware of. And then I was trapped in the always never paradigm. And I just don't want to be in the always never paradigm. I want to leave creativity. I want to leave nuance. And so I was, I was really excited to talk to you about like, how do I break away from this always never stuff? And, you know, uh, think about, you know, other heuristics that can help me get to a, a better answer than black and white. I think it's a really, you're at a crossroads and I think that you've done a lot of good work getting to this point in your journey. But I would, I would caution you. And I think a lot of people are in a similar boat. There's a, there's a path where you go down like the super theory, super solver oriented approach, or there's the path where you take everything you've learned in terms of how math impacts strategy and you try and get creative in applying it to opponents who are inherently flawed. And I think that, that second path is a lot more profitable if you can do it well. Now, what I will say is that being able to discipline yourself to follow a certain set of heuristics is another underrated skill. And I think that player, most personalities fall into one or the other bucket where there are some people who are 
very good. And I, I call it a skill, even though maybe it doesn't, it doesn't, maybe the, oh, well, maybe this is just me projecting. I don't fall into this bucket because to me, it's not as sexy, but I think that's more of a leaf than anything. The bucket of people who can take a set of rules and follow those rules. Like being too rigid. Not too, being able to be rigid. Being able, yeah, the ability to be rigid. Yeah, the ability to be rigid. I call it being a monk. The, poker, <laughs> the monk mindset to poker. You know, we, we, we have our routine, we follow the routine, and we observe. I think it's a really good way to get into the game. Learn some rules that work to a certain degree. Follow those rules and kind of see what happens. Like, yeah, in this spot, I called with ace-queen, which was that followed the rules that I had laid out for myself. I feel comfortable with that. But it didn't, it didn't work out. It doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe down the road, there's something better I can do. But for now, I'm a monk. I follow the rules. I do the routine. And a lot of people can't do that. And if you can't do that, you're, well, you're, you're either the monk or the scientist. And if you're the scientist, your ceiling might be higher, but your floor is much lower. Because the scientist can very easily eat their own bullshit. We see this outside of poker very often. Science can be a religion in itself. And if you, if you take all of your assumptions to be correct all the time, then you, your formula is always correct, but it might not actually yield the results that it's supposed to. And then you have to find a way to justify why that is, or just lie to yourself and say like small sample. I'm just, you know, I'm rounding into form. I'm just running bad. Yeah. Just running bad. So <laughs> the scientist mindset is very fallible to like things like self-deception. Post hoc justification. Yeah. Post hoc yeah. justification or, and a lot of that post hoc justification comes because there's underlying motives that are impact- impacting your decisions in the early going that you don't recognize. So things like, I bluff a lot because I think bluffing is what good poker players do. And I want to be a good poker player. I think that's really common. Where it's like, if, if you want to be a good poker player and your idea of what be a good poker player is is someone who bluffs a lot, you're going to bluff a lot. And if you're in the scientist mindset, you can find a way to like set up the assumptions such that what you did looks fine. Um, that bluff makes sense. Whereas if you're the monk, you recognize that like, you know, I, I can let go of that desire and just follow these rules. And so I think the ability to do both is key, but I think for most people, one or the other comes easier. And so if, if you think you're heading down the path of the monk too far, you want to get out, maybe meet some ladies or something, consider adding or throwing in a dose of science and experimenting a little bit and push the boundaries of what you think is right or possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I just want to say like, I, that's exactly, I feel like I'm at that point right now where it, it, I've had this feeling like if everybody's learning this standard trope and we're all sort of playing this, this standard way, like you, you always do this, you never do that. And, and like, we're all kind of learning the same, tools and where's the edge where's the ev if, if we're all doing the same stuff and i'm just regurgitating the same the same lesson plan from five different sites then like you know where's the edge right and 
And it, it comes back to like the poker educational industrial complex. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Where, okay, I can, I can tell you, like, I think folding ace queen here on the river is right. But that's a big risk. Like, y- you could be getting bluffed all the time here. I don't know. Like, you're, I'm, I'm advocating something that's very risky. Whereas if you, if I advocate something that I say is based on theory, then seemingly there's more credibility there or I've taken out, I've de-risked this um, suggestion. Which might be, there's a certain degree of truth there like if I'm doing something which there's a very clear exploit for what I'm doing, then certainly there's, there's a world where that exploit is being taken. On the other hand, anyone against whom you have an edge is someone where you make plays that they think are bad. Right. And so that's fundamental in poker. You can't escape the fact that to be good, people have to think that some of the things you're doing are bad. Because almost so many of our opponents are gravitating towards a GTO mindset. We, uh, some of the things that we do that are bad are things that GTO people are going to say that's bad. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. But if it's, if it's counteracting what they're doing, then how bad can it be? Yeah. It's, if it's a counter. And they're setting up these really nice parlays for us where it's like, all right, in the best case, you are. GTO, in which case it doesn't matter what I do. But I think there's at least a certain probability that you're risk averse in this spot or that you're overbluffing in this spot. And so I'm going to get way out of line because I think that the probability that you're actually consciously exploiting what I'm doing is really low because you're coming from a very sort of dogmatic mindset around what GTO is and what that means here. You can even get out of line against the GTO players because they're humans. They're not computers. Uh, <laughs> something that Maybe it's under, underemphasized. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, it's a good, this was a good hand to discuss. And I, I appreciate not, not wanting to bring in a hand, or I don't know what, you said you called and lost to a 10? I called and lost to Kings. Oh, Kings. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. Oh, well. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just had to. I, you know, if I didn't call that, then I'd be exploitable and blah, 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 right? <laughs> yeah. If I'm, not, if I'm not calling ace-queen across three streets, then what am I doing, you know? Kings is, Kings is also like a frustrating hand to see there because it doesn't, it doesn't really tell us anything about the situation. It's a hand that we thought maybe could go for thin value, maybe doesn't go for thin value. You know, it's a hand where we thought our opponent was pretty wide pre-flop. Maybe they're not. We don't, I mean, Kings yeah. doesn't tell us anything about that. You know, if we saw 10 deuce suited, that would tell us something. Um, yeah, exactly. Tell us anything. So it's a very dissatisfying answer. He just happened to have Kings on the button at a really drunk game, you know, so yeah. good for him. And, yeah, and, for him. He, and he was young, you know. Yeah, he looks like the kind of player that was be capable of, of tripling off with nothing. So I, I have to give him credit for tripling off with, with Kings. You know, I don't see why he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, but if he's, uh, the fact that he triples off with Kings, though, I think suggests that he shouldn't triple off with King Jack. Um, is my feeling. Do you triple off with 10, nine, probably, or Jack nine. Yeah, probably, but probably not. You probably should with King Jack. 
anyway, that's sort of beside the point. I think we've, uh, anyway, I, again, I wanted to say thank you for this particular hand because I think I have a tendency to seek out hands where really weird things happen and nothing mm-hmm. weird happened in this hand, but weird things don't actually happen that much. And if we talked about hands like this every week, maybe the show wouldn't be as interesting, but we have to talk about these types of hands really more regularly than we do because this is really where the money gets made or lost. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. I was I was a little hesitant to to bring this up, um, even though it's been what I've been thinking about for a while, for exactly that reason that it just wasn't that crazy and the action wasn't wild. But it is such a common spot where you're just thinking in these terms uh, that I thought it would be useful, and I and I w- wanted some feedback just on on um, my thinking, the you know trying to get out of my my rigid mindset. Yeah, that's really the only takeaway. It's not that you're thinking badly. It's just that you sort of imposed two rules on yourself, which led you down a very specific path. And I think those, both those rules were essentially illusions that it's not that they're bad rules. It's just that they're not rules at all. Like the preflop um, sizing and then pre-flop sizing you know, and the yeah. minimum defense frequency. Right. They're good, they're good guidelines, but they're not rules. And so if you treat them as rules, you lower your ceiling. You might raise your floor, but you, you definitely lower your ceiling. So, Justin, you're, uh, our listeners, while I'm sure they respect your poker intellect, may have gauged that you're not a full-time professional poker player based on your description of you know, the circumstances surrounding you going to Vegas and your like, loose description of your volume and the fact that you live in Colorado. What do you do? Yeah, I am certainly far, far, far from a poker pro, uh, just a huge enthusiast. Um, I actually work for what we call a free market think tank here in Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, called the Independence Institute. And what we do here is uh, we work on Colorado state public policy issues, things like education policy, fiscal policy, transportation policy, uh, things like that. And we are um, working uh, on these public policy issues always in the direction of less government intervention, less taxes, less regulation, more consumer choice, more parental choice when it comes to education. Um, And so I've been here uh, since 2007. So I've only had one job after college and it's been this, where um, I do a lot of video production. I do uh, a lot of communications with the outside world, getting our message out, uh, making videos, sending emails, updating our website, doing you know, podcast hosting slash podcast editing and all that stuff. So anything, I'm just really into, into economics and that, that, that passion for econ led me to uh, a passion, passion for public policy. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll be prudent as a podcast or a podcast host and issue a trigger warning (laughs) for anyone who really, really hates discussions about, politics or broader societal issues if you're just really not into that you might want to tune out now in the past i've gotten complaints about interviews that touched on politics and so if if you're if you're starting to get real riled up right about now thinking like i why is my poker guy telling me about something that's not poker i understand how you feel but i also don't care and so I would advise you just to leave and we'll just continue this conversation for those who 
you know, have an interest in these kinds of things and you know, want to hear from someone who's made a career thinking about and advocating for these types of policies and societal initiatives. All right, with that out of the way, what you said, it sounds a, it sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit red. <laughs> um, I, what, would to, uh, what would you say to people who their first reaction to hearing someone talk about those sorts of initiatives is that this is like coded language for you're like a big business shill kind of, you know, you're just trying to lower taxes, like slash important programs and just help out um, big businesses who want to squeeze their customers forever last time without giving back. <laughs> um, first of all, I would say that the Independence Institute and uh, all of our sister think tanks around the country we're 501c3s, so we are not allowed to engage in electoral politics. We can't say vote for this, vote for that, vote for this guy, don't vote for that gal. Um, so just on a legal sense that we are in, uh, strictly an educational outfit where we try to, we kind of view ourselves as a uh, public relations firm for liberty and um, basically libertarian ideals of being left alone, letting people um, live their lives uh, unencumbered and be the authors of their own destiny. So I'd say it's a, it's a, it would be a legal issue for us to, to engage in, in electoral politics, which, which we, we don't, um, for the most part. There are, there are exceptions. Uh, secondly, I would say that the idea that free market ideas are helpful towards big business is sort of contradictory to the other uh, idea that a lot of people have in their minds about big business, and that is that they're cronies. So I think uh, the general population holds two conflicting beliefs at the same time, where on the one hand, they think the big businesses uh, are crony capitalists, they're in bed with government. I, I happen to agree with that that line of thinking. Um, they're, they're all cronies. You know, this is the Michael Moore uh, capitalism, a love story. It's just all about cronyism. And so on the one hand, big businesses are cronies and they get all these favors and protections from the government. But on the other hand, these big, big businesses are really pro free market and they want to be left alone and they want to, you know, they, they want to be, they want to be, uh, left alone to exploit their employees and exploit society. And so I don't, so I think I've always found that those two, um, thoughts, are contradictory and and I've found them present in many many minds. So I would say that my my absolute love of of economics. Uh, I fell in love in college back in the year two thousand and learning about economic laws like supply and demand and how they interact uh, and are affected by government intervention. Kind of led me down the path of less government intervention is better for your average person. Less government intervention gives your your average person, uh, especially those most vulnerable, more options. And I'm a libertarian because I love I love people and I want to see people succeed. I love society. I'm an extrovert. I just I want to people to be prosperous. And I see the the government interventions and the state limiting people's options in life rather than giving them more options. So I think what can be one thing that derails some conversations like this or causes confusion to ensue uh, or people to talk past one another is a lack of good definitions. So let me have you first define what, 
what are you, how do you define free market capitalism? I would say a free market is um, a system in which people are allowed to trade uh, and exchange with one another unencumbered, um, uninhibited. So, you know, if somebody is offering to sell something and you're, you know, allowed, obliged to to buy it, then you're allowed to buy it, then and you do that. That would be uh, a free market, or um, an employer is hiring and you get to negotiate with your employer for whatever rate wage that you are willing to work for. I think that's a free market. So I think it's the the lack of intervention in people's personal affairs, uh, economic affairs. And I and I and I and I'm one to um, stress that personal affairs and economic affairs are are very roughly the same thing in my mind. I think if you're getting into somebody's wallet and stopping them from making an agreement with their employer, it's just as bad as telling somebody who they can and cannot sleep with or where they may, may or may not live. I, I look at all interventions into somebody's personal space as, as being bad, all, all of them. So I'll out myself as someone who's more than sympathetic to your view and who has thought about these sorts of things quite a bit. So I think that a lot of times, here's, here's two misconceptions, I would say, about free market capitalism that I don't know that the way we as libertarians often define it address. So the first is that I think it's, it's important to make very explicit that when a lot of people criticize capitalism, they're criticizing greed. And those words, in my opinion, are often used interchangeably. And so if when you attribute to capitalism something like, or we say like, oh, look at, look at early capitalism and the slave trade. It is true that slaves are being bought and sold, but I don't think you or I would agree that slavery would be a part of what we see as free market capitalism. And more so, I think, when people talk about early capitalism and something like the slave trade, we're talking about technological improvements that facilitate people to pursue their own, their own financial desires, which is, it can be a form of, or it is a form of greed. And I don't say greed is a dirty word necessarily, which is why I don't think capitalism is necessarily a dirty word either. But I do think those terms are used sort of, or people use capitalism in a lot of critical instances where they could really easily just substitute in the word greed. And so I don't think that, I don't think that's correct. And I think that what we should make more explicit about how we talk about free market capitalism is that it's actually not the absence of rules. It's not the, it's not, you can do whatever you want. It's actually a very specific set of rules that we think if these rules are enforced, then outcomes are as good as they can get, essentially. So what are, and I'm, I know I'm going at a, a bit of a, a riff and I, I want you to weigh in, or and I also am very much open to being like corrected or improved upon here. But I would say the free market capitalism is basically just a handful of rules being applied with any other rules added to this rule set being added voluntarily amongst 
contracting parties. And so the rules are, you can't use violence to get what you want. The second rule is we have some notion of property rights that is extended onto the individual such that if you use violence against someone's property, it's, we treat it the same, not necessarily in terms of like how long you might be punished, but it's basically the same as using violence against that person. So you can't use violence against a person or a person's property to get what you want. And then most likely something about contract, like we, we do enforce contract. That's the third rule. This is not a perfectly thought out summary, but I think sometimes maybe there's more of a negative connotation in terms of like, here are the things, or there's nothing that's off limits in free market capitalism. Whereas I think it's better conceived of as a very specific set of rules that we follow by in order to get the best results. And we don't add rules to that, but we also don't take away rules from that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think people are are very likely to associate libertarianism or free market capitalism with property rights. I think that's that's true, and I and I like that. I think that's the foundation upon which um, exchange is made, because in order to make an exchange, there has to be a, a definition of who owns what, and that could just simply be your your body. Like I am the owner and controller of my body, and I would like to um, work for you, Jack, and uh, let's agree to. $5 an hour because I really think this job will help me propel me in, in my career and, I, and I'm willing to accept $5. And so the problems that, that we have with the government uh, in the intervention is that against our consent and against our both of our wills, they'll come in and say, you can't do that. And they'll, they'll say, um, that's not allowed. You have to give him at least six fifty or whatever the, the minimum wage might be. So I think that um, consent is a huge uh, component of free markets. It's not imposing your will on somebody, not threatening with violence, not doing violence against somebody. It's a consensual exchange. And our gripe, our big gripe with the government is that the government is basically just a giant gun that kind of forces people against their will to do or not do certain things. And the other thing I would say about free markets is that if you admit that human beings are are self-interested, not necessarily selfish, but self-interested, then it is the greatest mechanism or conduit by which we get, we harness the self-interest for the good of everybody. So, you know, Adam Smith famously said, it's not out of the goodness out of, out of their heart that the baker bakes bread, but out of their own self-interest that the baker bakes bread. And so you're taking your, you're harnessing your interest in yourself and in your future and in order to um, get money or get prestige or get, or, um, or yeah, to, in order to get money, you have to please people. And if you want even more money, you have to please even more people. Um, and so, you know, you have giant companies that have pleased billions of people, millions of people. Apple, for example, Apple has pleased how many people in the world? And thus far, you know, it's countless and they have a lot of money to show for it. The Beatles have pleased how many listeners over? 50 years and you know the the remaining members have a lot of money to show for it so you if you can please more people than your fellow man you will have even more greenbacks to show for it greenbacks we'll, we'll, <laughs> get, into, we'll get into that in a, in a bit i'm sure um yeah I, and I i totally agree with what you're saying and so what i want to maybe to add a little clarity to what i was saying before essentially we acknowledge that 
people will pursue their own self-interest. Um, the baker, and the example of the baker baking bread is, is a good example. You know, the baker is baking to sell the bread. It's in his interest to bake this bread and sell it. That's where his advantage is. That's what the baker's good at. That's what the baker can offer. Now, how do you distinguish between self-interest and greed? And greed? There's not necessarily a way to do so. Um, and it's not that, that's not necessarily the value judgment being placed on different actions by libertarians. It's more so the reason why certain pursuit of self-interest we say yes to and other pursuit of self-interest we say no to is based on whether or not it violates certain rules which we think are acceptable or unacceptable. So I think uh, it's, it's useful to think about the ways in which property can change hands. And so assume well-defined property rights to begin with. You can acquire something from me in a few ways. We can trade voluntarily. I can give you what I can give you my property for your property. Uh, I can gift it to you or you can steal it from me or you could use some other form of coercion, blackmail, whatever to get me to give you my property, even though I didn't want to. So essentially we want a system that allows the former cases trade or just gifts. My, I can give you my, my property or we can trade and prohibits you from taking my property through violence uh, or the threat of violence. And so I think you and I would both agree that something needs to be in place in order to stop people from using violence, you know, to steal people's property or to coerce them into making some sort of exchange that they would not have otherwise made. But I think we would also see any other imposition of a rule involuntarily as a violation of people's rights. Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes down to consent. I think our, my credo is consent, consent, consent. Can you, is it a consensual exchange? If not, then I don't, I don't, it, it would have to, it'd be hard for that, for that exchange to pass muster if there is no consent from both parties or all parties involved. Um, and that's why we focus so much on the government is that it's just, it's the largest consent violator that I'm aware of. I mean, there's certainly, there's a lot of private thief, thieves out there stealing things uh, without consent, but these private thieves don't take 35% of my paycheck every two weeks. So what would you say to someone who says, look, you know, you might not like it that the government takes 35% of your paycheck, but you know, you, there's a social contract and you know, this is what's necessary for us to all live together. Well, I don't, I don't believe in the, the social, con I don't think there is any social contract. I never signed anything. I'd like to see it if I have. Um, I think that I, I have a lot of um, sympathy for that, for that point of view, to be honest with you. And I think if you would have talked to me in my 20s, I would have gone on a angry rant right now about how they're, they're wrong and they're, they're communists. But um, I think I have a, I have a lot more um, respect for that point of view, because I think that the system that we live in now with a a federalist government system, a federal government and states, state governing bodies is the best technology that we've been able to come with, come up with thus far. And it's, I believe that 
things like cryptocurrency and the blockchain and the peer-to-peer economy and 3D printers and a lot of this new technology coming out will uh, provide an escape route from the, the current system that we're in in that people like the current system that we're in because they can't imagine how they would get roads or education or protection services or a money or defense without the government monopolies on those things. So without, you know, Rothbard said many, many years ago uh, that if, if the government had always made and provided shoes that people would be sitting around scratching their heads and that wondering like how, how on earth the market could, could ever provide shoes. And so I think we're seeing technologies emerge like, like the blockchain that can offer a competition in these goods and services that previously we, we may have believed that were not possible without a monopoly provision. And I'd just like to say that people have to recognize when government does something, it is a monopoly doing that thing. You know, they, they, they do not allow competition. Uh, they are, they are setting a price and oftentimes, you know, like let's say protection services, people have to pay for the local police whether the local police beats them up and shoots their dog. People have to pay for the local school, even if that school is failing their kids. And so every time I'd like people to understand that every time they are asking for the government to do something, they're asking a monopoly to do it. And we all understand the failings of monopoly. They have, they're insulated from competition. They get to set their own prices. And the government monopoly is even worse because it's, it's setting a price and it's taking it directly, taking our money before we even see it. So um, I, I am sympathetic to that point of view, and I think that uh, inertia and the status quo bias persist for a, a good reason. But I think we're, we're seeing technologies emerge right now that will start competing with, with government services. Let me just give you one example. Uh, you, know, you, you, you can imagine a, a person that uh, had a really bad experience with uh, taxi cabs. Let's say, New York, let's say you know, Denver taxi cabs. I've had a really bad experience. It was terrible. I got into an accident. They smell really bad, whatever. And I could sit here and, and I could imagine myself picketing uh, at, at the Denver State Capitol for 10 years going, we got to get rid of these taxi cabs. They're so bad. We need competition. We need. And then here comes Uber. You know, here comes Uber and now Uber and Lyft. And, and now I have uh, an ability to, to choose. I have a consumer sovereignty and I get to exercise my choice. And I get to say, you know what? Forget these damn ca- taxi cabs. I'm going to go with the Uber. I'm going to go with the Lyft. So we're seeing these. These, uh, these technologies emerge that allows us to compete with these monopolies that have provided some pretty bad services. So let me first ask you, before I uh, imbue this term on you, would you call yourself an anarchist? Yes, but I would almost never use that word with anyone else. Right. And I would use the term for myself as well. And I think that, well, it's not a great term just because of the connotation but I think you and I would both, let me, let me put it like this. I think it can sound like the type of change we're adding, advocating for is extremely radical. And in a way, it certainly is. But in another way, really, I think what we're saying is, it's not, we're not so much placing like a huge value judgment on the types of things the current system does. It's more a value judgment on the process being used to arrive at these decisions. So let me, let me add some context to that. 
a lot of people live in towns and have good relationships with their local government. And maybe they like some of the things the local government does with local tax revenue, including things like parks, as an example. I'm not personally putting any value judgment on whether there should be some sort of local organization that collects revenue and uses that revenue on things like parks. My only value judgment is that that agreement should be come to voluntarily between that organization and the people who uh, would fall within the bounds of that organization. So how would that come to be? Let's imagine that uh, everyone in this community is leasing property from some sort of central organization who owns the broader property. And in that agreement, in leasing, they agree to some sort of uh, you know, progressive income tax that's going to be used for, you know, at the discretion of that business. There's, to me, there's nothing wrong with that because you have opted in very explicitly to that income tax and most likely there's like an opt-out clause in the contract you signed. That's a very different process from what we have now where you're born in a country and there's no contract and the rules can be changed on you without your consent. And so I think there, I think, I don't think the world would look totally different. Uh, I mean, in a way, I think it would look totally different in the type of society I would advocate for versus what it looks like today. But I think in some ways this, it's a more subtle transformation than what it can sound like when you, when I say like I'm an anarchist and I don't believe we need a government. Uh, because I think that a lot of the things the government does are things that someone will do. I just think that the market can provide those services better. And the real key to living together is to have shared values. And as long as I think if we advocate for the values of private property um, and non-aggression, that's, that's the fabric you need to hold society together, not some sort of ruling class that can dictate what the rules are, even with certain constraints from moment to moment. Yeah, and I, and I would also um, say that I agree with you that we're not advocating some completely you know, different society that would be would blow your mind because it looked nothing like what we're living in right now. And I think people take for granted how much they actually do choose the rules under which they live. For example, I think private property owners make the rules. And I think that that's the best way to come up with good rules and rules that can change as thing as circumstances change. Um, For example, I went to George Mason university. I chose not to go to BYU in Utah because the rules that I would live under in BYU are just not to my taste that, you know, no caffeine, whatever, no alcohol, no R rated movies. You get the picture. I chose to go live under the jurisdiction of another set of rules. You know, every time you go, let's say you, on a Friday night, you go to the movie theater, you're agreeing to go under the rules of that, that property owner of the movie theater. And you say, you know, that the rule is you don't bring in your, don't bring in your own popcorn. You don't bring in your own sodas. You buy our popcorn and you buy our sodas. You go, okay. If that's if that's good with you, then that movie theater will continue doing business and it will um, stay open and and it won't uh, it won't be uh, it won't go to business and it won't relinquish its resources. It'll continue to please people. But if the movie theater says makes rules that are are 
uh, unattractive to customers, then they will go out of business and they'll liquidate those resources. So I think our system is one where property owners make the rules and people are choosing the rules under which they under the, under which they live and and even you know think about going into a mall. You know you have you know mall security. You have um, different rules at the mall than you do at, at the at the university campus and things like that. So we're kind of already used to going where where we know the rules and we we accept the rules. And if they're not good rules, then the customers implicitly tell the business that these rules are not good and they either change the rules or they go out of business. And so I think this this system of private property and consent is one that we're we're pretty used to so far. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's a very intuitive system, but the degree to which it's extremely foreign, I think shows a certain success in painting an image that we very much need a government as currently constructed to provide a very specific set of things that's not completely, but somewhat arbitrary. And that that set of things is growing over time um, for various reasons about which we need to be extremely fearful for and continue to hand over control uh, and shift from a more private property intuitive organization to a top-down control or a society that's organized through top-down control where rules can be changed and enforced uh, without people's consent. So if you're with us at this point, it's probably a reasonable time to talk about who, more specifically, you said you studied economics, but you know what are some of the ideas or thinkers that really changed your mind? Or, or did, were you born this way? Let me first ask that. I wouldn't, I would say I was raised as a kind of like a Reagan Republican, um, limited government, low taxes, low regulation, strong national defense. Uh, and then I went to George Mason in, in the year 2000, which happened just so happens to be a, a, a fantastic, uh, institution for economics. And I took my first micro class intro to micro and just fell in love with the, with the the social science, I should say, I, I hesitate to call it an actual science because my in, my view of of economics is different than I think a lot of other people's views, and that I don't view it. I don't view it as a hard science. I don't believe um, that you can, you know, use the scientific method on people's preferences and uh, people's constraints. Like I don't know everybody's preferences. I don't know everybody's constraints, and so I, to me the kind of economics I learned at George Mason was of the Austrian school. If, if anyone's ever heard of that, the Austrian variety where um, it's, it's a lot more studying human action and human behavior. And it's a lot more deductive rather than inductive. And I always found that pretty fun and fascinating. So contrast that with the, the Keynesian school where you're just kind of like plugging in a bunch of numbers and into an equation to try to get the results you want. You're making quantitative predictions and all that, and I just kind of eschew all of that. So I think that's going to come off as very strange to a lot of listeners to say that uh, science can't deal with the questions of human motivation or to say that, you know, equations like, ah, like, we don't need, we don't need equations is a, why is that your outlook um, in, in the field of economics? Is that your, a broader outlook that 
equations are not useful, that we can't glean anything in terms of like what humans' desires and constraints are? Or is there something special about economics that requires that sort of treatment? I think that people are, I think people take for granted that you can look at economic history and um, look at a lot of uh, economic data of the past and then make forecasts based on that. Um, I think that people underestimate how, how often and how drastically human preference changes over time so that you're looking at this historical data, you're, you're, you're plugging in these wonderful calculations and you're doing these, these awesome uh, economic regressions, trying to get a good p-value and you're, and you've totally lost the fact that no one eats gluten anymore, you know, or, or uh, you've lost the fact that patriotic movies just don't sell that well anymore. The, you know, there's, you know, I, I use this example all the time that, you know, Murray Rothbard, the economist, the Austrian economist who studied under Lud- Ludwig von Mises, that's another name that I'm very, very uh, apt to get out there. I think people should look into Ludwig von Mises or Murray Rothbard, but Rothbard said, take a good like ice cream. You know, ice cream, to me, ice cream is a different good in the winter than it is in the summer. You know, people's reaction and their preference for ice cream is very different. The same good, very different depending on the season. So you trying to plug in a bunch of historical data on when people purchase ice cream and controlling for this, controlling for that, are you considering the season? Are you considering that people maybe are, are sensitive to fat now? Are you considering all these other variables and, and, and all these human psychology is a, is a beast, you know, it, it's, it's constantly changing. People are irrational. And I think the Austrians are the only school that really take that in, into consideration that people, I, I, I don't even know my, my own preferences. Sometimes I'm irrational. So oftentimes, you know, we, these things are hard to account for when you're looking at, at economic data in the past. Right. And I think, I think the reason that Austrian economics maybe yields different results and seems more appropriate as a way of dealing with economic questions uh, and deciding like what's the best way for us all to proceed, you know, from a standpoint of maximizing individual welfare through an economic lens is that the economy is an extremely complex system and that we have, you know, so far, our ability to collect and process data is not not even close to on the scale of what's required to try and make predictions based on the past from a purely sort of data-oriented perspective for something as big as the economy, the total sum of all economic interactions, you know, many of which don't involve any money changing hands. And I mean, the, the same kind of argument could be made about climate science. Sorry to throw that into your guys' ears. I'm sure that, you know, that enters like a, a fistful of nails. But I think that the, the problem is not that we can't learn anything. The problem is that if, if you trust scientists and or if you assume that scientists are operating in good faith good faith meaning both that like they're not actively trying to deceive 
and they're also not unintentionally trying to deceive so that they're truly operating with the scientific method and that our methods of working with very, very large complex data sets are adequate to make predictions. Uh, if, if you take both of those assumptions, then I think you can be highly, de you're highly deceivable by people who have a wealth of data in front of them that they can consciously or unconsciously use to get roughly whatever result they want to put in front of you. Um, and it, it's a really big problem because most science, I would argue, and it's just, I think it's just the nature of humans. It's begun with a certain result in mind that's more desirable than another result. And maybe that's not as big of an issue in something like a field like physics, which has had a lot of success. But I think in something like analyzing the economy or analyzing the climate, a lot of people who are tasked with that responsibility are coming with, they're already coming with an idea of what the right answer is. And they're coming with a set of incentives, which will yield them towards one answer or the other. You know, let's imagine the incentives of the economist. You know, an economist, if an economist can get one of two answers that both, that anyone would believe because they're an economist, and one of those justifies a huge increase in state power, and the other doesn't justify it, a huge increase in state power. And let's say the, the biggest payer or the biggest opportunities for economists come from the state, then perhaps the economist will be biased towards trying to generate a result that supports the conclusion that state's power should be expanded. It's no I, surprise that John Maynard Keynes and the Keynesian school of economics uh, is so was so popular or is so popular because it was a justification for government spending. You know, hey, the uh, the there's not enough consumer spending in the economy because animal spirits. So therefore, the government has to step in and spend a ton of money, borrow and go into debt and spend a ton of money. So I think that your your point is well taken. But I, I wanted to touch on the previous um, complexity point. Uh, it's no surprise that if you've read Nassim Taleb, uh, the Black Swan. I'm about halfway through and the only, you know, he's making fun of economists the whole time because they're always, they're constantly trying to predict and he thinks it's hilarious because they're just never right. And he's right. They're never right. And the only school that he even mentions is the Austrian school. He mentions Frederick Bastiat and he mentions like the broken window fallacy and, and our biases and some of our psychological biases. And he, and he mentions Friedrich Hayek who uh, famously uh, talked about the knowledge problem and the fact that, you know, knowledge is dispersed to local tacit, we don't know what we, we don't know sometimes, or we don't, we can't articulate what we know sometimes. And so it's just, if, if I urge listeners to read uh, The Black Swan, just kind of take in how complex and how unpredictable the world is. Yeah, I highly recommend all of Talib's stuff. I think it's, it's really good, both for sort of understanding the world and the types of mistakes people make. But it's also really, I think, helpful as a poker player. Things like, I think his book, Fooled by Randomness, is going to be a pretty intuitive read to people who have been listening to this podcast for a long time. The idea that small samples and a human desire to like put meaning on a small sample is a really big error in reasoning that can cause a huge 
or are very poor decisions in the future. You know, if you're trying to retrofit your decisions to the past, you're dealing with a small or unintelligible sample and you desire some sort of meaning. It's just a recipe for disaster. And so I, I think of the, the Austrian school as like, it's more of a first principles approach where there's sort of a set of first principles that are derived via logic, which I think is a lot harder to refute uh, the sort of chain of logical reasoning that leads to this set of first principles and then making recommendations based on those first principles rather than trying to make a database recommendation. And it's not that the data doesn't line up with Austrian school thinking. It's just that it's, it's not even really worth saying that because you can, I, I would maybe argue that the data lines up better with Austrian school predictions, but we've already established that that's relatively weak evidence when you're dealing with such a complex system. So I, I don't, I don't rest my confidence in Austrian school conclusions on the fact that they line up with the data. I rest it based on, they're based on logic, which I think is uh, probably our best tool for grappling with the world. Yeah, I think you've touched on, you know, the, the, the only sort of prediction that the Austrians really ever do would be sort of like a qualitative prediction. Um, the Austrian business cycle theory uh, is one in, in which you're, you're looking at the government setting the interest rate lower and lower and lower and lower and saying, well, I think that these consequences will happen as a result of the government pushing the interest rate lower than its natural rate. And so I can't tell you how much, when, where, um, I'm not going to say 18.2%, for example, but I can say if the government is distorting the signal that is conveying information, that's what the, the interest rate is, and they push it below of what it, what it, what it is naturally, then you're going to get, you're going to see these kinds of qualitative results. And so the, the difference is the Chicago school will tell you, oh, it's going to be 18.2% uh, reduction in employment. And that's just, to me, that's just craziness and sanity. Yeah. And I think it opens a criticism to Austrian economics, which is, it's a very reasonable criticism. The idea that you're making claims that are not falsifiable. You know, I think that if you, uh, restrict the top price on corn, then you will get equal to or less corn produced than would otherwise be produced. You can't necessarily prove that. It just flows from logic. And so the more sort of complex examples, or I think that's pretty intuitive, like to anyone who's studied supply and demand, but you know, more complex things like the Austrian theory of the business cycle is you're making claims which don't have a specific magnitude or timing and you're comparing it to a reality which will never exist. And so it's a, you can't necessarily falsify the claim, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth paying attention to in the same way that, you know, numbers don't really exist or I don't know, maybe I, I would guess some like mathematics philosophers would disagree with this, but maybe maybe analogy would be that we can't really prove that two plus two equals four, but we all know that two plus two equals four. That's probably a bad example, but 
Yeah, I would, I would say it's an admission that human beings are not rocks falling down a hill. You know, a rock, a rock doesn't have a brain with uh, motivation and preferences and goals. So you can run an infinite number of experiments to figure out where the rock is going to end up when you push it down this hill based on the physics. But human beings have preferences and goals and self-interest, and they're not, you know, rev- they're not divinely revealed in the world. Right, and this is also not like a refutation that there isn't determinism and that if we, perhaps if you had a complete history of the universe on a particle-by-particle basis, you know, the most fundamental unit, you could make very good predictions about what, what's going to come. Not to say that's computationally possible, but let's just, we're not, we're not saying that's not the case, but I think... I think the thought that you can make predictions based on data from the economy uh, that are going to be like highly accurate is you, you might have to get down to that granular of a level to make that kind of prediction. And it's, it's hard to say like, where's the line between like the data we have now and the tools to analyze that data that we have now versus like understanding the exact rule set of the universe and every single particle, like where on that scale of data and processing ability, can we make good predictions? And I think maybe people are assuming that we're, we're pretty far along such that we can make good predictions. And maybe I come from the perspective that we're actually not, we're, we're a lot farther along than we used to be, but we're not even close to being able to make good predictions uh, about really complex systems, even with you know, the ability to collect more data as time goes on and process more data as time goes on. We're still far away. Yeah, we haven't even solved no limit for crying out loud. And we, I think people also don't want to accept that we probably will never be that close. You know, we probably will never solve no limit because we have the techniques to solve it, but we don't have the tech. There's not enough informational space in the universe to store it. So <laughs> that's, that's a roadblock. You know, yeah, I got, a, I, got, I got a big head, but my head's not that big. Yeah, we need a, you know, at least a binary representation. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a better form of informational storage that we're not aware of yet that we will be someday. But I think it's probably better to go about your life assuming that that's not here and it's not coming soon. Yep. So if people want to learn more about Austrian economics, they want to learn more about libertarianism. Where would you point them? Uh, first and foremost, I would point them to the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, fee.org, fee.org. They are focused. I just actually had a chat and hung out with the former president of Fee, Larry Reed, this weekend. And he was saying they made a concerted effort in the last eight years to kind of uh, be like the intro or the building block for students high school, college, young professionals to get into the ideas of economics and liberty. So I would definitely recommend fee.org. Awesome. And fee.org? I don't, yes, I don't think you'll the video, but I just <laughs> got showed a wristband with fee.org, so you know it's serious. <laughs> right, you heard it here, fee.org. Uh, Justin, I'll have to have your wife on at some point to talk crypto. Um, yeah. Yeah. Another, another thing that we share an, an interest in 
and perhaps a, a fair amount of our net worths. <laughs> not positive, but in your case, I, you know, I, I know for my case, although I will not be sharing. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you guys stuck with us and uh, are hearing us now. And I thank you for doing so. And Justin, I thank you for joining us. Uh, where can people follow you specifically if they want to do so? Um, I am on uh, Facebook as Justin Longo uh, forward slash jlongo12 on Facebook. And I'm on Instagram at longojustin. Um, so yeah, social media and, and uh, in independenceinstitute.org to see what's going on in Colorado in terms of the free market movement here in the great state of Colorado. All right. Fantastic. Thank you again for coming on and we'll see you guys all next week.